This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning. This is Michael Semblist with the May, Mid-May Eye on the Market podcast. Around a month ago, I wrote uh, in one of the notes that the U.S. might start reopening in the middle of May due to inclining infection rates. And that prediction turned out only to be half right, because while states representing almost half of U.S. GDP have announced reopening plans, uh, the U.S. still has one of the highest COVID infection run rates in the world, um, and one that is declining only very slowly and has not uh, declined more sharply like we've seen in other regions such as Europe. And um, given the ample evidence of heightened mortality risk for the elderly, uh, we're, we're at a moment now where the risk of greater generational sacrifice is about to arise. <clears throat> we are going to be tracking both the virus consequences of state reopening and also the consumer spending impact of state reopening, uh, drawing uh, uh, in part from information we're building out from our colleagues at Chase Card Services. We want to be able to really get an assessment for what reopening means, because in different states it may mean different things, and rather than just adding up the GDP of the reopened states, I think we need to take a pretty close look at, at, at how, what the responses are and what the elasticity of different categories of spending are to a reopening. Now that said, we are already picking up signs of a revived economic pulse at a national level, and we have charts in here looking at hotel occupancy rates, petroleum demand, rail traffic, mortgage applications, new business applications. There's a decent number of, uh, of high-frequency U.S. data tracker indicators that are already picking up. One of the factors that is presumably going into these decisions to reopen is are there any treatments that can be used on a prophylactic basis for healthcare workers or for sick patients. The news continues to be pretty slow. Uh, there was a new antiviral trial result that showed some promise in reducing time to recovery from 12 to 7 days, but it, it, it involved um, uh, three the use of three different antivirals at once. Um, interferon injections, multiple antibiotics, and oxygen therapy. And so while, while the outcomes were, were okay and the viral load also declined more rapidly in the treated group than the control group, um, there weren't that many differences for patients that were treated seven days or more after their symptoms came on. So in other words, uh, uh, a highly intensive hospitals, hospital domicile or hospital-only approach uh, that needs to be used with patients with mild to moderate symptoms. And, and those two things often don't go together, which, in other words, uh, people that are hospitalized with only mild symptoms. Um, we also have a discussion this week of the latest news on monoclonal antibody therapy, which is basically um, <coughs> antibodies manufactured outside the human body that give a temporary uh, immunity boost um, to sick patients or to healthcare workers. But again, these are these are clinical trials that are ongoing. Uh, Regeneron and some other companies are going to be taking a look more closely at these trials this summer um, and uh, uh, could be available more quickly than a vaccine. But again, 
more costly, harder to produce at scale, and, uh, and the, the, the impacts are temporary, usually just a few weeks. Jumping over to the real economy and to corporate profits, uh, last week we took a look at the haves and have-nots of employment and how layoffs are very highly concentrated in leisure and retail and how somewhere between 65 and 75 percent of those workers look like they may be receiving, at least for now, uh, state and federal benefits that are equal to or greater than the, uh, their pre-tax earnings. Uh, this week, we take a look at the high concentration of the earnings hit as well, because that's also very concentrated. Uh, it's kind of remarkable, but if you look at around 70% of the S&P market cap, the projected earnings declines are not that bad. The you know, tech, internet, retail, and media, which is now, after everything that's happened, around 40% of U.S. equity market cap, is not expected to have much of a growth hit at all in the second quarter. And non-cyclicals, which is another third of the market, are only expected to have an earnings hit of around 20%, which is not that bad, given how much operating leverage a lot of these companies have. It's, it's the financials and then obviously the cyclical companies that are expected to have, to have their earnings completely decimated. Uh, but part of the resilience of the equity market so far and the recovery that we've seen is, is probably a reflection of the fact that you know, more than two-thirds of the S&P market cap is projected to suffer a much smaller earnings hit. Whether that does happen in Q2, and I have my doubts, um, is another question. And so we're going to be monitoring the Q2 estimates really closely, given how optimistic they are for the non-cyclical stocks and tech, internet, retail, and, and media. Um, but if they can escape from Q2 with, you know, flat for tech and down 20% for the, for the non-cyclicals, that would be a pretty good outcome. It, a lot hinges on two things we don't know yet, which is how, and I mentioned this earlier, how robust will consumer and manufacturing activity be in partially reopened states? And how large a virus, inspection, a virus infection spike would be needed to prompt a reimposition of lockdown by the governors? And to me, it feels like with the rally that's taken place, the market's are already pricing in good news on both of those questions. In other words, a, a, a fairly rapid resumption of some degree of normal activity um, in partially reopened states, and then second, that um, either the virus inspection fight, virus infections fight won't be that big, or if it is, that the governors will have so much momentum behind a reopening decision that they would not reimpose any kind of lockdown conditions. Um, it feels premature to me to make both of those judgments. And so, as I mentioned last week, uh, we, we feel like the markets are kind of fully priced now for, for what the upside and downside opportunities are um, going forward. And, and one of the remarkable things to me is that while 2021 earnings projections for the S&P have come down since the beginning of the year, they're still around flat to what the actual EPS numbers were um, through the end of 2019. So um, uh, that seems uh, a bit optimistic, and we'll have to see whether or not it plays out. There are two final topics in this week's uh, that I wanted to talk about in this week's podcast. Uh, the first is the regional equity performance barbell. For, for many of you who are aware, we've been following this for a long time, and, and in my career, I've been, joined J.P. Morgan in 1987, and I have never seen any 
investment thesis work as anywhere as consistently as this one, which is a, a regional overweight to the United States and emerging markets and equities and underweight Europe and Japan. Uh, there's a chart in here showing <laughs> that it's more or less worked on a rolling three-year basis from 1991 until now with a, with a temporary period of underperformance in those two years of the Southern European growth boom in 2005, 2006. But other than that, I am actually running out of ways of imagining uh, how this trend would ever change. Uh, particularly this year, the United, compared to the U.S., Europe has had a much more rapid decline in infection rates, and Japan's infection rate barely registered at all. Um, and, and yet, Europe and Japanese equities are once again underperforming uh, the U.S. and emerging markets. And um, there's not a lot of things from the 2020 outlook have survived this pandemic, but one of the more important discussions from the outlook this year, which came out in January, that, that's still very relevant are the structural advantages of U.S. equity markets compared to Europe and Japan. And specifically, uh, number one, a much higher exposure to tech uh, relative to basic materials, energy, and industrials um, in the U.S. relative to the other regions. And secondly, and I think this one's even more important, within each sector, uh, higher U.S. profitability measured as return on assets and return on equity uh, for U.S. companies compared to European and Japanese counterparts within the same sectors. So you know, if, if the United States is generally comprised of stocks tilted to more towards high-growth sectors, and within each sector, they end up being more profitable than counterparts elsewhere. That's a really strong structural advantage for U.S. equities. And um, uh, you'd have to have a massive valuation discount uh, in Europe and Japan to offset that. And, and you know, <laughs> for a really long time, that hasn't happened. Last topic. Uh, last July, we wrote a special eye on the market on leveraged loans because uh, there had, there's been an absolute collapse in investor protections uh, in terms of covenants. And uh, we went into some detail on this, and there's, and there's some data from Moody's where they put together an index showing just how weak these covenants have become. And, and heading into the fourth quarter of last year, uh, the, they were the weakest on record in terms of investor protections. And I'm talking about things like leverage and interest coverage tests, most favored nation provisions, uh, restricted payments clauses, leakage of assets out of the collateral pool, the ability to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries and affiliates. These are the things that investors have been surrendering at a record pace. So then you come into this year, you have this pandemic, and now we're going to have a a credit crunch and a spike in default rates, um, this is going to be a problem for the leveraged loan market. Now, it, it already was, right? And, and almost mirroring exactly what the price action was in 2009, you had almost an immediate upfront 30% decline in, um, in, in leveraged loans uh, in March, and which is almost the same thing that happened in March 2009. And in March 2009, there was a pretty quick V-shaped recovery. I think it's going to be a little bit harder this time, given the erosion of investor creditor protections and and um, and the problems in terms of lockdown, and particularly in the states where it's prolonged, that it's going to have on cash flow. So, uh, to me, after this recovery, the, the the leverage loan markets recovered around half of what it lost. To me, it seems like a pretty decent time to think about shifting out of some of these leveraged loan exposures 
um, and taking a closer look at distressed debt given this expected surge in um, non-performing loans and other distressed assets as we head into the summer and fall of 2020. So there's more information on that in, in, the, in the eye on the market that's coming out this week. Uh, take a close look. We also have a list of some topics that you might have missed. Um, over the last couple of weeks in the eye on the markets, we've uh, addressed whether the uh, U.S. fiscal stimulus is enough. We, we took a close look last time on the COVID impact on underfunded state pension and retiree health care obligations and what that implies for the Chapter 9 debate. Uh, we, we, we looked at this questionable premise about the BCG vaccine being a, a driver of COVID severity uh, and, um, and a discussion of some of the more ambitious vaccine timetables and serology results. So um, take a look. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.